Well, we finished up finally chapter 8 in John last week that had to do with uh, the Pharisees bringing the adulterous woman and then the conversations that Jesus had with the Pharisees after that and to other people in the, in the group that had gathered as a result of that. Uh, as we concluded last week, we're going to be moving on to John chapter 9 uh, today, and uh, we are going to take some time to get through here. We're not going to do the whole chapter in one sitting. It's going to take us longer than that to, to do any kind of justice to it. So we're going to be put, looking at the first, uh, nine, or first 12 verses in, uh, in John chapter 9 this morning. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud uh, with the saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and, uh, and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Some very important lessons from those rather few verses. Very often, I think, people have this idea that Jesus came into the world and he spent years in training, in essence, which he did, and, you know, and all of that, and, and only came on the, the, the more public scene as he became a young man. And I think that people very often have the idea that Jesus just went around the land, just kind of happenstance, you know, just going here and going there and this, that, and the other. And there was not really anything determining his schedule and where he went and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. He was just here doing ministry, you know, just here, there, and yonder for those three years. Well, we understand already that there were some things that defined uh, his comings and goings to some degree, and one of those was those three annual feasts that he had to be in Jerusalem for. So we've seen him back and forth to Jerusalem a number of times already in the book of John. That had a lot to do with where he was and why he was where he was, being at those annual feasts. Unfortunately, I would imagine there are a lot of people that read this story who would conclude that Jesus just happened to be walking down the road one day and he just came across this guy out of the clear blue. I hope that's not your understanding of who Jesus is. If you believe that God is sovereign in absolutely everything, including matters of salvation, you have to understand something, that Jesus was there at that time, at that moment, in that place, by divine appointment that was established at the very beginning of time. He was there for this guy. 
He didn't just come across him during his travels here, there, and yonder. And I would say to you this, that he would have been there regardless of whether that man was there by himself or whether there was a crowd around. He went there for a lot of reasons. It wasn't just for this man more than likely, but one of the primary reasons was to find this particular guy. Jesus was a peripateo, which in Greek just means traveling teacher. He didn't have a particular place where he preached every Sunday morning or, you know, a particular town that he stayed in the whole time. He was moving around constantly and continuing. He was a traveling evangelist. And he had an entourage that went with him, not only the 12 disciples, but there were others also who came along with him. But I just want to remind you this, that this was not an encounter that just happened by chance, but it was a divine appointment that was set on God's appointment, on Jesus' appointment book at the very beginning of time. Jesus is where he is at this time and place according to the Father's divine will and purpose. It's not an encounter that just happened. There are on occasions when people are are born into this world and they're born again by the Spirit very early on and so there are times when there are people who can't remember a time when they were not a believer. That's not true for the vast majority of people. Unless you happen to be one of those rare exceptions, you have experience your own divine appointment. Your own personal and private, probably, to some degree, encounter with Jesus. The time when you first said and accepted him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus had a physical encounter with this man, but he also had a spiritual encounter which superseded and was far more important than the physical. And what I'm telling you is this, is if you truly believe, then you have had a spiritual encounter with Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit working within you, my own came. 30-something years ago now. You know, I grew, I grew up in the church. I was, in the, you know, everybody when I was a kid were church kids. You know, all the kids I went to school with, I also went to, to church with a lot of them, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Because I was from the Old South, and the Old South, it was like everybody was assumed to be a Christian. You hardly ever found anybody that was not connected to some church. And I grew up believing the idea that because I made a profession of faith when I was 12 years old or whatever, then 
even though I began to doubt, and at one time even began almost to the point of denying Christ completely and absolutely. My real encounter with Jesus came on a Saturday morning, 30-something years ago, in Lori and I's kitchen. Did Jesus appear to me physically? No. But I know God was in that room. He was there. He brought me to my knees. And then he lifted me up again. A new person. See, what I'm saying here is this, is you may or may not have experienced God's divine physical healing of you. Let me just tell you, every time you've ever been healed from anything, God's the one who has done it. Always. He is the healer. Always. But the thing about it is, is we all suffer from this disease called sin. Sin that has led us away from God. The one who created us, the one who created us for his honor and for his glory. But we all suffer from this disease called sin. And so for us to be made new, he, the great physician, has got to bring healing to us. That divine appointment that I had did not take place because I willed it to be so. It took place because God had willed it to be so back at the very beginning of time. That this would be the time when he would take arrogant and prideful Keith Staten and humble him to his knees in his presence. Yours may not be as dramatic maybe as mine was, but if you know what I'm talking about, you've experienced it yourself. I did not go looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for me, and he found me. This man had been physically blind from the time before he was born or at the time of his birth, and no one knew why. Certainly, maybe today, the doctors would be able to figure out what his problem was. He had never seen a thing in his entire lifetime with his eyes. And he was into his adulthood. Why was he blind? Even his parents did not know why. But they did know that he had been blind since the very, from the very beginning. He had never, ever seen anything. Even into his adulthood. And again, we may not be physically blind, but there's a spiritual sense in which we've experienced the same kind of renewal. How familiar are you with amazing grace? Those words of John Newton that so many know and love, I once was lost, but now is found. I was blind, but now I see. Words that he spoke well into his adulthood. 
after he lived a good bit of his life as an unbeliever. One wonders if he was not just taking this particular story that we find in the Gospel of John and applying it to his very own personal context. I was once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Today, even though there are people who are born blind, there actually are people that are born blind today that physicians have been able to restore their sight to them later on. You know, back in these days, if you were born blind, you're going to be blind until the end comes unless something like this happens. The strange thing is this, is those that who are, were, were born blind and, and they've had their their sight given to them later on in life, they say pretty much the same thing, and that is the world is nothing at all like they had kind of envisioned or pictured it to be. They have a hard time dealing with the reality of it. I read a story this week about a guy. He was, he was 68 years old, and he'd been blind his whole lifetime, and then his sight was given to him when he was 68 years old. After the first few days, he fell down the stairs in his house because he wasn't used to watching and seeing as he walked. He was used to feeling his way along, and he'd lived in that house for most of his life, and he had never fallen one time. When Jesus opens our spiritual eyes, we see the world very differently than we did before. See, one of the things with the Pharisees and the Jewish people in general, they believe this, that, this, that every affliction, every physical affliction that, that came upon anybody, it was because of their own personal sin, in particular, a particular personal sin that they have committed, and this was God's judgment upon them. And we need to understand something, that there is a truth in that. That every hurt and every harm that has fallen on mankind is a consequence of man falling into sin back in the Garden of Eden. It's all related. The problem with the, the viewpoint of the Pharisees and the legalists was this. Is they concluded that because they had not been afflicted with something like this personally, that meant that they were squeaky clean and pure. So they're, they're befumbled by this whole situation. Because they're asking entirely the wrong question. And they're coming to entirely the wrong conclusion. It would be far more legitimate for you and I to ask the question, Why was I not born blind? Why was I not born deaf? Why is it that the Lord has given me pretty good health physically? 
Why is it that I don't really struggle financially? Why is it this? Why is it that? Do you, you understand? Because all of those things are consequences of sin. The thing that should amaze us and the question that we should ask is why don't all of these things happen to all of us all the time? It's very easy for people today to do it, and we've all done it to some degree. We look down our nose at other people and think, you've got what you had coming to you. But the reality is this, is none of us have gotten what we really have had coming to us. What we have gotten is what we have in no way, shape, or form deserved. God's grace. Over and over again. See, the biggest problem with the Pharisees is they had no room for something like grace in their theology. It was all about keeping the rules. And the assumption was that if you didn't have these kinds of things, that you were doing okay. Jesus once again says that I am the light of the world. He, he had said that already back in chapter 8 when the Pharisees had brought the woman that was caught in adultery. We talked a lot about that just a few weeks ago. I think one of the most important things theologically for us to, to understand here is the importance of having an understanding of what theologians call the doctrine of original sin. Many, many people believe that we're born pure and as we live through life that we, we start committing sins and therefore we become sinners. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches us is that sin is inbred into us from the point we're conceived that we're sinners. As we said last week, the, the, the Jesus doesn't save us from our sin. What he saves us from is the consequences, the eternal consequences of our sin. Because we know that even the very best of us, the very best among us, that we still continue to sin. And let me tell you, as long as that's true, I wonder how in the world anyone could ever, ever, ever have any assurance of their salvation. Anybody who, who understands that they are a sinner, if they believe that they, in essence, have saved themselves, how they can ever have assurance of their salvation. You understand that the only place I've had assurance of salvation is knowing that God has saved me. And because God has saved me, I cannot fall away. He will never, ever let go of me. And it's not because I'm great and it's not because I'm good. It's not because I'm sinless, because he is gracious. Period. And he has shown me grace when I deserved everything but grace. See, we're all born into sin. It's part of our DNA. And Jesus is the only one that we can be set free of that bondage.
This, mor- this man was born afflicted with blindness because of the glory of God. That the glory of God would show forth in two ways here. One, in healing this man from this physical affliction miraculously. But also by awakening him from spiritual blindness. You see, there's something going on greater with this guy than just his eyesight. Jesus does not only heal him physically, he heals him spiritually. Which is far more important. I just want to remind us of some things this morning. One of those is that if you know Christ, you are in fact no lesser of a receiver of a miraculous act on God's part than this man was. If you are a believer, you are a bona fide miracle of God. God removed the spiritual blinders that kept you from him that you would now see and know him up close and personal. And your conversion, just like this man, serves as an example to other people. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Jesus has given us the spiritual sight to see him as he is and as who he is. And he does not do that for everybody. He did something here kind of unusual. He spit on the ground and he made mud with it and he put the, the mixture on the guy's eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam, which was in Jerusalem, and to wash his eyes free of this mud. People look at that and go, well, there must have been some kind of miracle, some kind of miracle drug in the mud. That Jesus needed to make this stuff to make the guy see again. And we understand that's not true, that sometimes Jesus just said it and it happened. The the, the mud was something that's here for our benefit, to help us understand what this picture really looks like. Not something that was required by Christ. So we struggle with what is it? What is the message that we're supposed to get out of that? And what I would say to you is this, is we need to understand something. That real faith has to be expressed. Real faith has to come down to actually doing real things. 
In other words, even though Jesus gave this man faith, he also asked or demanded something of him, that he do something as a consequence of it. One thing we can say definitely about it was it is a way for this man to express his newfound faith in Christ. Doing what Christ told him to do. Did he stop and say, well, why should I do that? Or why do you want me to do that? Jesus said it. And he did it. And I want to challenge us all with the idea this morning that faith is never given to us for our sole benefit. It's always also for the benefit of other people. That we would be an example to other people. Because he not only washes his eyes, people begin to ask him, how is it that you didn't see but now you can? And he witnesses of Christ Jesus. To those people. I would challenge us with the idea this morning that Jesus never gives us salvation exclusively for our own personal benefit. It's always also done to some degree for the benefit of other people. That they would see what Christ has done for me. And it would encourage them to believe as well. So let me ask you something. Are there tangible ways in which other people are currently benefiting from your own faith in Jesus? People doubted. <laughs> you know, some people were saying, you know, this can't be the guy who was blind because this, this, this kind of thing just doesn't happen. It must be somebody that just looks like him. It's not really him. He's just maybe he's like his twin. Because people that are born blind don't receive their eyesight again. I saw something on TV just recently, or I read it on the internet somewhere or whatever, and they're estimating that in the world today, there are as many as four or five people who look so much like you that other people couldn't tell you apart. And that's true for every person that lives on the face of the planet, supposedly. But we know that's not what was going on here. Not somebody just looked like him, and then in fact, it was the man. He said, I am the man. It is I. It is me. 
And so they asked him, how then were your eyes opened? And he freely gave all the credit to the one who had credit due, not to himself. It wasn't about me. It wasn't that I deserved it or I earned it or this, that, and the other. It was all about Jesus. In light of this, it's amazing to consider how many Christians really believe that they were saved in essence by Jesus doing some, but by them doing the rest of it. I would imagine the vast majority of believers think that. Most believers believe this, that Jesus did some and he leaves it to us to do the rest of it according to our own efforts and our own free will. My friends, that's about as unbiblical as you can possibly get. But the vast majority of people in Christian churches today, that's exactly what they believe. That Jesus did some and we do the rest. Jesus did it all. All underlined and emphasized. And yet some will say when they find out that's what you believe to be true, that you are... A prideful and arrogant person. Believing that you think you're better than other people. Unfortunately, sometimes they have reason for believing that hogwash because they see it. They've seen people that have reacted this way. But I want to tell you something. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It just is. The truth is this. That those who truly understand that Jesus saved me part and parcel did everything necessary to make me profess faith in him which I did finally, but I did only because he enabled me to. Not that he encouraged me to, not that he just opened up the doorway for that to happen, but he brought me to the point that I actually did it. He did it. He did it all. Every whit. We deserve no credit for anything. And let me tell you, when you understand that, it will set you free in a way that nothing else will come close. And it's the only thing that will, and it's the only place where you can have real assurance of your salvation. Because your salvation doesn't depend upon you doing this, that, or the other. It depends on the fact that Christ has already done for you what was necessary. And he's paid the price, paid the cost. 
And he saved you because your name was written in the Lamb's book of life at the very beginning of time, not on the day that you made your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. God has known you from the beginning. He has loved you from the beginning. He has done everything for you necessary to make you his. Now, what does that say about how special you are to him? You may not feel very special to other people. But let me tell you, if you're a believer, you're special in a way that no one can ever take it away from you and they can never even begin to explain it. See, when we look upon this Lord's table that we're going we're gonna to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we're not celebrating the idea that Jesus came into the world to make salvation simply available to people. Because let me tell you, if that's what he did, then there would be no believers. If he left it completely up to people, no one would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody. Not one. And what that says to us is this, is this is the price that he was willing to pay to have little old me. As imperfect as I am, as weak as I am. See, this is a measure of a lot of things, but one of the greatest measures... It is of the love of Christ for you. That God himself was willing to do the unbelievable, the unthinkable. To lay his eternal claim on Let's be mindful of that this morning as we remember the Lord's Supper. The praise team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of preparation for.